Welcome to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Will Kelleher and you're listening to our special series examining just what it takes to win the Rugby World Cup in the company of those who have been there and done it. We'll take you from 1987 to 2019 through the eyes of great world champions ahead of the 10th World Cup in France this autumn. We'll hear their memories and stories, anecdotes and insights, all with the goal of answering one simple but devilish question. How do you win the World Cup? So join us on a rugby journey to whet your appetite for France with Legends of the Game. This time on how to win the World Cup, the year is 1995. I'm back, says Michael Jordan, as he returns to the Chicago Bulls. Eric Cantona is kung fu kicking and Robson and Jerome top the British music charts. In rugby, professionalism is about to dawn. Apartheid is lifting in South Africa with Nelson Mandela as president and so the country can host the Rugby World Cup in May and June. Australia are the world champions from 91, but South Africa, only a few short years out of sporting isolation since their moment of history. The tournament becomes iconic, from Jonah Lomu steamrolling Mike Cat to Mandela handing Francois Pinard the Webb Ellis Trophy. The Springboks beat the All Blacks in front of 65,000 people and the winning drop goal was hit in the 92nd minute of extra time by box fly half Joel Stransky. So, from the Times and the Sunday Times, this is a Ruck special. How to win the World Cup with Joel Stransky. So, Joel, a great pleasure to have you on this special Ruck. And we're going to do this with all of our guests um, across all the World Cups. It's the title of the podcast, after all. How do you win the World Cup? Joel Stransky. Yeah, good afternoon, guys. Lovely to be chatting. And uh, it's it's not something you can answer in about five minutes. How long have you guys got? Yeah, well, hopefully 20-odd. 20, 20 but why don't we try and get to it at the end? But why yeah. don't you help us with some context about your World Cup in 95? Can you kind of bring us back and tell us what life was like in South Africa? I mean, to put it mildly, time of great change, wasn't it? It was a, it was a time of great change. You know, we had, uh, we had uh, we'd obviously said goodbye to the official... Apartheid era, we had a, a new government. We had this man that became one of the greatest leaders of all times. He'd just become our, our president, Nelson Mandela. And uh, it was a period where there was a, a serious amount of uncertainty. There was a, a period where no one really understood what the future held for, for any of us. Um, and he came along and uh, played such a major role in bringing people together, in, in merging different communities and, uh, and and creating one country. And I think what most importantly, to put it all in context, at the time, he used rugby as a great vehicle and and uh, and did it unbelievably successfully. To, for him to go out on the field wearing a Springbok jersey, to bring you know the far right wing and the far left wing closer in support of a national sports team, it was, it was just an incredible time for us. It was a it was a special time, and for us as players to get to know him was mm. was unbelievable. Because he he came in and saw us before the World Cup and spoke to us about how he would ensure we had the support of the whole nation. He came 
came into the change room before the final. You know, he really wore his heart on his sleeve and he showed great forgiveness, great kindness, great inspiration. He was just everything you could wish for in 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 a in a great leader. And and I think on the back of that, he not only brought the country together, but he inspired us to to you know achieve something special, to play above maybe our station and to come out on top. Do you, do you remember the words of that that first meeting and what struck you about the man? So I, what I remember about the first meeting is that is that we were training at a training ground called Silvermine. It was a navy base in, in, in the, on the side of Cape Town, really, and and we'd been told we needed to be off the field at a certain time. And how that how training normally worked is the uh, we'd all go down and we'd warm up and we'd train, and then the kickers we would stay behind and we'd do some kicking afterwards. And we had to cut cut our kicking short our kicking session short because. He was coming in in the helicopter, so it was a little bit of an inconvenience. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm not but stopping kicking he... for anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got a World Cup to win here. What's going on? <laughs> but uh, he, he he flew in and uh, landed, and we we met him on the field, and then we you know we went up into um, a function room there, and we had tea and scones, and and he spoke. And at that point, it was pretty generic. You know, he spoke to us about you know the importance of the Rugby World Cup, how it would bring people together. He spoke to us about how important it was that we did well. He didn't say go out and win it. But most importantly, he said to us, you know, we, 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 he knows we're sportsmen. He knows, you know, we, we, we uh, want to go out and play the game, but he will, he will make sure that we as a, as the national side of the support of the whole nation. And, you know, I think that was the message he gave us. Um, and then we saw, you know, throughout the, the, the course of the World Cup, uh, how at times controversially he supported us mm. against the will of other ANC members. And, um, and and how at the end, at the end of it, and I can I can remember clearly us the week of the the World Cup final, the, the bus trip to to Ellis Park you know, at the time, the fact that it was the whole nation, you know, the taxis, every single person we saw of all different you know cultures, all different races, was carrying a Springbok flag and uh, or a South African flag and and hoping for us to do well, and and so he. He brought that promise to fruition, which yeah. is just amazing. If you think about how tough that must have been for him at the time. Totally. So from that first meeting, did you get the sense that the tournament was going to be bigger than just trying to win a, a World Cup? Because you hadn't been at the previous two because of isolation. But did you, or did it kind of grow throughout the tournament? You sort of felt the mm-hmm. political side of it as well as everything else? No, I think it grew throughout the tournament. And I think probably we only really realised the significance post the tournament because mm. I think as a as a young to be fair, young white rugby player, you know, you just we just wanted to play the game. We we understood we had we had responsibilities. We we, we learned the new national anthem. We did some coaching in the townships. We uh, we did our part to try wherever possible to try and bring people together. But really, if we, if I'm brutally honest, we wanted to go out and play the game. We wanted to go out and win a rugby world cup. And in fact, probably even less so, we wanted to win each game that was put in front of us. And hopefully, the dream at the end, you know, fulfilled itself. So, so, so that journey for us was, to be quite frank, it was about playing the game. I think post Rugby World Cup, when we realised the the role rugby had played, it was much more significant than it was at the time. So, so on on the rugby side of it, obviously South Africa had been fairly recently let back into out of sporting isolation, I suppose, and as we mentioned before, hadn't been to eighty seven, hadn't been to ninety one. Did it help or hinder you the lack of rugby? I suppose against the top sides of the world, do you feel like? You went in as maybe a bit of an unknown quantity, then, and that benefits you in some way. Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I think um, 
I think the nature of the beast is that that whatever happens, wherever you come from, whatever your background, if if you are there in that situation, you do you believe you believe you deserve to be there. You believe that you're the best in your position. You believe that your team can win any game. Because if you don't, if you don't believe, you you're never going to win it. That's the reality. If you don't believe, you know you're not going to win the game in front of you. You're not going to beat anyone unless you really believe. And and we believed. You know, we'd uh, we'd we'd sort of come through rocky periods in '93 and '94. We uh, we weren't the best, but you know we we'd won a few games where we which had helped grow grow the belief and the confidence. And, and then most importantly, we as the training began for Rugby World Cup, as the training progressed, the belief grew. We um, we trained unbelievably hard. We were we were supremely fit, the fittest team at the Rugby World Cup. We um, you know we have we we had a simple game plan, but a game plan we played really really well. We. We were strong and we learned lots about each other and our team in the in the build up to the World Cup. So 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 when we got to and we were focused, most importantly I'll say that because I think some teams focus on going to the World Cup and winning the World Cup. We were focused on beating Australia in that opening game and then we would, you know, reassess what our next focus was. And once we beat Australia, our next focus was to beat Romania and then to beat uh whoever was was Canada, Canada whatever yeah. it was. Um, it, it, so, so for us, it, we, we, we like had all those little ingredients that psychologically are, make you unbelievably prepared. And, and uh, we had a lot of really good players. You know? Looked around that squad. We had we weren't the best squad at the World Cup, but we had some guys who became on who became best of of breed in the world in their positions. Talk us through that prep because nowadays you get months and months and months of training and matches and training and training and training and fitness and matches and training, but. Because it was still the amateur era, was it quite last minute, or did you have a bit of time to gather together? Because you, I guess, you would have all had day jobs and everything else. You couldn't just drop everything. Yeah, we, we all had day jobs. We all had some form of form of work. So, and and of course, South Africa is a big country, you know. So to get the guys together was tough. We we would fly fly up to Joburg every Monday for a day training camp, um, and then we would uh, we would train like mad dogs the whole day, and then we would go home with. Um, and go back to our, our our unions, our provincial unions, but we would also have a little bit of a program that we needed to make sure that we you know we we built in. So so there was there was a lot of work, a lot of fitness, a lot of individual skills, and then obviously the closer it came to the World Cup, the more we the more we trained together, the more we became a squad, the more we went into camp and spent time. I don't think I mean you know we weren't paid to do it, so we say we weren't professional, but I think our attitude was that of professionals. I think we. We certainly went out and trained as hard as the guys trained today. Yeah, maybe yeah. not as sophisticated. I think it's much more sophisticated now. There's much more science, obviously, on the back of a lot more research in the last few years. But there's no doubt that we trained equally as hard. So we'll get onto some of the the bits and pieces about the match and the final, and obviously the drop goal. But I'd love to ask you about Invictus, the film that obviously came out a few <laughs> years ago. And I personally, I think the best thing about it is that you're played by Clint Eastwood's son. Is that right? It is right. It is right. Yeah. Have you and, met? Have you uh, met Clint? Did you have to do some sort of I don't know meetings and chat throughs? Because he directed yes, it I, for, I mean, for our listeners. Clint Eastwood directed that film, didn't he? He did, and and so I, I was fortunate to get down on set and spend a bit of time on set and had dinner with Matt Damon and wow. Morgan Freeman and uh, and met Clint Eastwood at the one at one night at dinner and obviously I spent a a little bit of time with Scott Eastwood, his son who played me. It just it was really cool and, and, and the most unbelievable people. When when I met Morgan Freeman, he was we were walking down the tunnel at at Ellis Park. 
he was in Nelson Mandela personality mode. So he, wow. he spoke to us as if he was Nelson Mandela to, to start with. Then he went out and did his bit, and that night I did it. You know, he was he was back to himself and 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 in normal persona. But but it was fantastic that night at dinner. So the one night we had we had like a private dinner. The one night we had like a team dinner with the cast and with everyone. And uh, if I remember correctly, François Pino wasn't there. I had to say a few words. And the one thing I did say is that you know if we cast our minds back to 1995, even post the World Cup and having won won the final, and we someone had told us on that day that at some point in time we would be having dinner with Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon and all these mega stars who were making a movie about us. We would have thought someone was smoking their socks. And <laughs> and, and, and that's that's the absolute truth. You know, we were just a bunch of players who, who went out and played the game we loved playing and came back with a great result and and and, and had a wonderful story behind it. And uh, it was it was it's a great privilege and an honor that that Hollywood made a made a movie about it. Just on that dinner, I must tell you, I think at the time Clint Eastwood was already like in his late seventies, and when they made the movie, and he was late for dinner because he'd spent an hour and a half in the gym. Wow, fit as anything. Fit as anything. What a man. What a great man. Was there anything of that film that you thought, oh, I didn't quite happen like that? But that's the, the sort of Hollywood oh, lots, aspect. Lots, yeah. lots. Some of the refereeing yeah, yeah, yeah. calls and stuff are a bit random, aren't they? Some of the rugby footage. I yeah. Exactly, and 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 you know what they say in Hollywood: don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah. But um, there were one or two. Probably for us, the most disappointing thing is they were in the film. They sort of hinted that we didn't want to learn the new anthem. We didn't okay. want to go coach in the township. We just wanted to play, which was probably a little unfair on us and made us made us a little extreme on the other side, you know. Mm. And and that wasn't true. The the refereeing and the rugby itself wasn't wasn't great. But they couldn't use original footage because the license fees would have been okay, enormous. Yeah, yeah. So you can understand why they they went about it that way. But for me, the story of Nelson Mandela um, and his bodyguards and how he you know knew the game and how he was was so supportive of his team for me, that side of the story was just sensational. We could rattle through every game, but we'd be here all afternoon. So, what about the two ones that stick out? Maybe that the France semi final with the whole rain delay and everything else. What was the hell, what yeah. was that like for you guys when basically a flood came on, didn't it? Yeah, so so we we were probably, I guess, in a sense, a little fortunate. We'd had something similar in our in our game against Canada and Port Elizabeth. The stadium lights had gone out, and we we had a delay, so we'd learned how to cope with the delay. So when we got down to Kings Park, and it was it was raining and and wet and as wet as that, and then they delayed the start. I guess we we probably had already learned on how to stay calm, and you know we're like a whole process to to uh, not become anxious in that period and we you know we, we did our own thing but the, the key there was to stay calm in, in the build-up to that game and to, to find a time to to find a way to bide your time as as you just sat, sat and as we sat and waited and I mean the reality was if the game hadn't happened we would have had massive drama we would have been out but Louis Late was the, the president of South African rugby and head of the World Cup and if we'd had to swim that game it was going to happen you would never <laughs> have allowed it to not happen so it did happen, um, and I, I guess it was. I mean, the conditions were tough; they were tough for both sides, um, and 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 we snuck through. But but the the crux was, I guess, to find a way to stay calm in in that piece when you know between when kickoff should have been and when kickoff really happened. Yeah. And and I and and I think that's I guess the nature of any sport. And the key is is in those anxious moments to find a way to. To you know, stay zoned out until you have to zone in, and then zone in properly. And I, th- I think we did that really well. So 
the day after you'd won that semi-final, 1915 against France, was probably one of the more iconic performances of all time in the World Cup with Jonah Lomu scoring four against England, running over Mike Catt. Did you guys watch that? Yeah. And, and now when you knew you were in the final and saying, right, we've got to have a plan for Jonah, because that was kind of up to then his tournament, wasn't it? Absolutely. And what an icon. What a, what a great man. And, and undoubtedly the... Uh the first absolute icon of global rugby and probably the, the ultimate icon. I don't think anyone is in the, any one player is, can supersede him or has superseded him as, 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 as a single entity as, as he was. So, so after the game in Durban, we flew straight back to Johannesburg. Kitch Christie was a man of detail. He wanted us back at altitude immediately. He didn't want us to even spend one night in Durban. So we flew back. The Joburg and Pretoria-based guys were allowed to go home. Us guys who were from the coast, because um, I lived in Cape Town at the time, we had to stay in the hotel. So the next day, we, to cut a long story short, we watched a couple of us watched the game in the hotel. My roommate was Mark Andrews. We were watching the game and as you quite rightly point out, by halftime, it had been such a Jonah Longley show and it was already matched. The contest was over. It, it, we were playing pool and watching the second half. And it was it was actually quite depressing because we looked at it and we thought, holy moly, it's, we've done well to make the final, but but this is maybe one step too far because we, you know, we, we, we didn't right then in that moment see a way of stopping the big man. And as it was, Kitch Christie happened so he didn't go home he stayed with us in the hotel and uh, he was watching the game there in the, in the team room with us um with the old vhs video recorder and it went to, when it was over he stopped the recording pushed rewind watched it again he watched it a third time and then he stood up and he said to mark and i and a couple of the other guys that were there he said oh we can beat them and he walked out and i think that was probably the first time where there was like a hint of belief you know we where we sort of looked at this great coach of ours you up until then, had got everything right. His attention to detail was unbelievable. He, you know, he just he was spot on in everything he did, in every in every way possible. And and if he said we could beat them, then there's no way that he was wrong. And 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 we could beat them. And that was when the belief started. We had to change our defensive pattern. We 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 knew that. We stood a little wider. We pushed Jonah back into the traffic. Um, try to get numbers on him, and maybe even pushed him back to the forwards to get Mark Andrews, who was playing number eight, to make a few tackles. Just made a few tackles on him. Um, so we got the big guys on him, but uh, we carried on. Other than that, we had plan B, and if things did go pear-shaped in terms of changing our game plan, but thank heavens we didn't need that because we were absolutely rubbish at it. But the whole plan came together. You know, it was it was a, it, it just was like a golden day for us. Were you, were you at all aware of because obviously in the years um, that have come afterwards, there's been quite a lot of chat about the controversy of him being ill before the final and all that. Did you have any idea about any of that beforehand, or did it all come out afterwards? So we had no idea, and, and obviously we heard about it afterwards, but we just chose to ignore it. Yeah, yeah. That's so, <laughs> <laughs> one word. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it helped, yeah. didn't it? I mean, because he, he was pretty quiet, and maybe half of it was your plan, but he didn't do much in that final particularly, did it? It was no tries at all. It was all you and Andrew Mertens kicking goals, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was always going to, you know, World Cup finals are normally quite tight and it was always going to be tight as soon as we managed to shut him down. And I don't think he was quiet because he may have eaten something bad. I think I think he was quiet because we, we were smart in the way we played against him. We, when he did get the ball, we pushed him infield we, and, and our game plan revolved heavily around not letting them get the ball to him. And he didn't get much ball. And and I think in years post that, the, the Springbok defensive pattern against him never changed. And he never scored against South Africa. So... So, you know, we, we set the blueprint and, and it worked on the day and it was adopted by the Springbok team thereafter and, and always worked. So 
you know, uh, there's a lot been said about Susie and the food poisoning. And we, uh, on the day, whatever, whatever, however way you look at it, we were the, the better side. And, and, I, and I guess the fitter side. There was a moment where I think we were the luckier side as well. Andrew Mertens had a chance to win it with a drop kick near the end of normal time, I think, and, and pushed it right a little bit. But the longer the game went on, the better we got, the fitter we were. And, and, and obviously then, you know, we, I think to beat that all-black team, you could not start badly. Couldn't allow them to start well. You had to start well. You had to, you know, be in the game all the time because they were a team that could run away from you. And and the longer we were in that game, the better it became for us. I didn't know that stat about Jonah Lomi. That's incredible that he never scored against South Africa. That's a brilliant stat. Yeah. All, the, all the tries yeah, he got, never. he never got one against the box. Amazing. It is an amazing stat that and 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 it says uh, so. So I think it says something about the South African tenacity as well because. I guess when we look at such an iconic player, everyone, every single player who ever played against him didn't look at him as as uh, anything other than a massive threat and a, and a real determined effort to stop him scoring. And South African teams manage that, you know. So come on, let's spool on the VHS to your drop goal. Um, yeah. I was, I was looking out about it the other day and I, you can tell me if this is right or not, but did you defy team orders or did you go against the plan to kick that how did that all play out well yes yes but but you know what are what are orders you know you in, in a game <laughs> of rugby things things have to change don't they and so we had uh we had a couple of great back row moves we had u.s fund of estes and carrying the ball andre jabeer james small you know we had we had great runners great carriers of the ball um and and particularly off the off the off the base of the scrum rudolph strally dynamic big and heavy strong we had sucked in defenders so, so we had we had a big blindside, and uh, we called a blindside move, and and well, Francois called the blindside move, and it was the right move, it was the right call. But I think they'd obviously studied us on on their VHS tape as much as we'd studied them, and and they they obviously had a plan, and they knew what we were doing. They had a plan to defend against it, but the plan meant an extra player over there, so it meant. Uh, I mean, I could see immediately the way they lined up that the move we called was not going to work and it wasn't going to be effective. So, but what it also did, it freed up a gap between the scrum and Andrew Merton's defensively for me to step in and make the kick. And Kitch Christie and I had spoken about the drop goal in the week. We practiced it all bit. So I'd said to Yus van der and I gave him the cancel call and we cancelled the move and he sent it back and as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, and it was a great strike. I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to catch it any better. It went so high. I don't know whether that's the altitude. If people go on YouTube, they'll probably be able to find it. But perfect hit, was it? Well, I'd like to say it wasn't the altitude. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, like, no, it, it, does, it goes almost strike. over the, perfect the post completely, doesn't it? It's not like a tiddler. It was. Yeah, it was. It was. I hit it absolutely sweetly. And I mean, to be fair, Ellis Park is such a beautiful field and the grass is so lush. And as long as you drop it right, it's it's it almost slips the fraction longer and waits for you to kick it. So it's um it but it was a great strike. I wish I'd kicked all the kicks in my career as well as that. It just it was a great strike. And and as soon as you hit it, it's, as soon as you kick it, it's like hitting a golf ball. You know, you know you know when you've hit it sweet. Um if you look up and you know it's going in the right direction, you can pick up your tee and 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 that was the same. I, I hit it sweet, looked up, it was spinning perfectly, it was sailing through, it was a uh, matter of seven minutes we still had to go and defend. We we ran back to go and defend. Yeah, I was going to say that the other drop goal that won a World Cup final, Johnny Wilkinson 03, was much closer to the buzzer, wasn't it? So you probably had all those nerves. But is there was there the moment where, because I think there was a knock-on that ended the game around a, a ruck or a scrum, wasn't there? And then finally blow the whistle it and was, that's yeah. it. 
where it all kind of hit you in a wave and you suddenly go, oh my God, we've, we've done it. So, so, I mean, I think the nature of the beast is you don't allow it to hit you. You don't, you don't even think about it hitting you until the actual final hooter, or, or in that case, the whistle goes, because there was no, you know, now there's a hooter that goes, you can see the clock winding down, mm. the players have, the, have that benefit. They can, they know they've got to go two or three phases of eight seconds each, and then they can kick it directly into touch and the game's over. You know, we were in the hands completely of the referee. So we didn't realize when that knock happened, at that point, we were all concerned. It wasn't the end of the game because another another phase, another opportunity for the All Blacks with with Jonah there, they could score from 80 meters out. Mm-hmm. So so it was a bit of a worry. But the, the knock on happened. The final whistle went. We celebrated, and uh, you know it was a special moment. And again, you know, just like earlier, I think maybe only like afterwards, months afterwards, years afterwards, do you realize you know how wonderful a moment that actually was. And, and the time we high five and you know, watch Madiba celebrate and hold the trophy, which was absolutely amazing and, and iconic in our country. But only really afterwards do you realize the significance. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. The one thing that Wilkinson has said a lot since he's retired and everything else was that the perfect moment of his career was when he knew the ball was going out at the end of the game and they'd won the World Cup but it hadn't quite happened yet because he'd sort of know you've reached the top of the mountain but and it's kind of only downhill from there and maybe that was the way he looked at it but in the years after it did it did it feel like that or or was it hard after you'd won it maybe to go we've sort of achieved the greatest thing what's next so so for us actually post rugby World Cup, it got quite tough for us because um, Kitch Christie, the coach, was ill and uh, had cancer and um, could no longer coach, didn't coach much longer. In fact, 96 already, he, he retired due to ill health. Um, we had a new coach. He was, yeah, not 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 a, not a great character, I would say, is the easiest way to say. Right. The less said, the better. And, um, and, and, and then, you know, there was this whole evolution from amateur into professionalism, which I think some of us as senior players became more involved in and more, more distracted by than others. And uh, it became, you know, the political side of rugby began. It was, it was, for me, it was a difficult time. It was not a happy time. It was, it was, a, it was, it was politics and all sideshow issues that, that became a massive destruction. And, and, and eventually I decided to go and play in the UK and signed with the Leicester Tigers and went over to play in England. Which which re-energized me and reinvigorated me personally because all of a sudden all I did was play the game professionally. I had a, my daughter was a few months old. I, I like grew up with my with my little angel, and 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 us as a little family, you know, we we had a had a great four years in the UK, and and I think that that change is what gave me you know the next the next target the next goal and extreme and to go on and do great things with the Leicester Tigers was incredibly special. So is there a tinge of sadness maybe laced in with all the joy as well that it, it kind of didn't quite, I don't know, 
the legacy maybe wasn't quite what you expected at the time. It, as you say, it kind of became a bit politicized afterwards. Um, so I don't think so. I, I, I think the legacy of 1995 and the Rugby World Cup itself is uh, is, a, is a wonderful legacy. I think it um, it was it was, it has. So the great thing about it is it has a rugby legacy and it has a a, a social legacy in this country and. And that's something that no other World Cup has ever done. You know, we, we, 95, uh, 2019, to some extent, with Sia Khaleesi as our, as our incredible leader, did something similar in terms of bringing people together. It was iconic for different reasons. First black captain, the first black captain captaining aside to win a regular World Cup for our country. You know, it, it, like a different type of political agenda. But 1995 with Madiba, first World Cup, our first win, you know, just on the back of, our first fully democratic election. It ha- it has a legacy on the field and off the field that that I don't think can be surpassed. And 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 so it's I don't think that legacy for everything that happened in 1996. Um, I don't think anything can take away from that legacy. I think what happens in life though is you you achieve certain goals and then there are some who look back on it and live in the past, and there are others who look forward and set new goals and new dreams and move forward. And and unfortunately, I'm one of the guys who move forward. There are other guys who look back and who do have issues about living in the past. But but for me, I've, I've found my new goals, my new rugby goals, my new rugby life for the Leicester Tigers. And it was it was a special time. And But as I said, nothing will ever take away from 1995. So why don't we end with a question we asked at the start of, so how do you end the World Cup? Yeah. Well, well, I've been writing down a few things you've mentioned while we've been chatting, and I don't know whether they're all touch points that may be uh, relevant to all World Cup wins, but it's possibly with South Africa, maybe this kind of higher purpose thing that often drives their World Cup wins, the belief being the fittest, having luck, one game at a time, having lots of top players, the World 15 players, and the attention to detail. So, so I think it's much simpler. I think it's much simpler than that. Good, let's so go I for don't it. Think the, I, yeah, so I don't think the higher purpose thing is, is something that counts for, 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 for all teams or for... For many teams at all, and I think it's uh, you can have a higher purpose, but if you don't have the rugby recipe, you're still not going to win it. So, for, so for me, rugby World Cups are about handling pressure. I think, yeah, and you think about France now. France on paper at home must be the favourites. How will they handle the pressure at home? That's the big question, and that's the hardest thing. It's going to be the hardest challenge for them. I think rugby World Cups are about handling pressure, but to get in that pressure zone. To be in 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 the in the game, you have to play a brand of rugby at World Cups that 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 is capable of winning the World Cup. So I think, but this, so here's my recipe: you have to have a physical pack of forwards, you have to kick your goals, you have to have the best defensive structure, and and then on top of that, you need great leadership because the leadership makes decisions at vital times. Um, and then psychologically, to add to that, you have to know how to handle pressure in the big moments and. And and I think if you can put all that together, you'll see that they are, you know, there's maybe four or five teams that that can win the Rugby World Cup this year that have that ingredient, the the, the strong puck of forwards who, who who can be physical under pressure. The All Blacks showed it last weekend against the Springboks. We know the Springboks can do it. We know Ireland can do it. Um, we know France can do it. Those are undoubtedly the four favourites. I would think on the other side. In England or Australia, or maybe in Argentina, can raise their game for one or two games and create a few upsets. But I doubt, I doubt they'll beat the four, the four, one of those four favourites. And then you know those four favourites again: pack of forwards, strong defensive efforts, 
strong kicking game and they kick their goals, you know, and, 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 and defensively they're hard to break down. And by the way, all four of those teams have shown at, at times when it matters really most, they can handle the pressure. They do the right things under pressure. So, so against each other in France, it's going to be the, it's going to be a great contest, isn't it? It's going to be a wonderful rugby world cup. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for sharing your memories of yours in 95. And it's all down to pressure and handling it. There you go. That's the answer from Joel Stransky. Pleasure to chat to you today, Joel. Amazing. And thanks so much. And enjoy the World Cup yourself, the one coming up. It's been great chatting. Nice chatting. You guys take care. We'll all enjoy the World Cup. You guys enjoy it too. Thank you. There you go. What a pleasure to listen to the 1995 World Cup winning Springbok, Joel Stransky. And it's all down to handling pressure. You've been listening to a Ruck podcast special, How to Win the World Cup. Like and subscribe, spread the word and follow the times on social media at Timesport. And we'll have another episode for you soon. This podcast was produced by Alfie Reynolds. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.